I want to thank each of you for uh, letting us be with you today. It's been a blessing. Uh, I look at this church, this fellowship of believers who are salt and light, not only in this community of Lano, but far beyond. Uh, God gives us the opportunity to minister in various places, and in so many of them, they know about this cowboy church. We thank the Lord for you. Also thank the Lord for the wonderful music we've heard today. That has really been delightful. This morning, I want to remind every man here, do not forget Valentine's Day. <laughs> or you may have a quiet evening at home. God has given us, the Lord God, the Father, has given us a wonderful Valentine. It is there for the taking. And the name of that Valentine is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love he offers to each one. And I trust everyone here has received that love from him. We will be this morning in two passages in Genesis because this describes God's great offer of love from the very beginning. But the climax of that offer and the completion of it comes when he sent his son. And I want to start with Matthew 19. For there we see our Lord Jesus going to make it possible for you to receive the love of God and life eternal. Because someone who is his son, was willing to die to take care of your sin and mine and give us a life, life eternal in his son. Matthew 19, of course, is the life of our Lord as Matthew was led by the Holy Spirit to record it. And in that wonderful gospel, we come to chapter 19 and we have come to what is the climax not only of this gospel but of his life. In verse 1 we read, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a large crowd followed him and he healed them there. Those first few words are crucial. When Jesus had finished these words, those, of course, were the things he had been teaching, those who came to hear him, his disciples, and all of those who collected. Some had never heard him before. And what we need to realize is at this point, our Lord is basically finished with his earthly ministry. He will have only a little over a week left before he was taken to a hill, uh, actually a mountain outcropping in the city of Jerusalem. We call it Skull Hill in English. It is called generally Golgotha. It is where he would be crucified for our sins. And when the scripture says he finished these words, I think it looks back at all that he came to tell and teach those who came to hear him, to follow him, and many to believe in him. At this particular point, he is traveling. He is, as it were, taking his last journey. He has come from the highest mountain in that part of the world, it is called today by the Arab world and even the Hebrew world, El Sheikh. It is almost 10,000 feet high. It sits at the guardian or the very north end of what we call the Hula Valley. At the other end of it, we have a beautiful lake. And this lake is called Lake Tiberias. As it were, it is the Sea of Galilee. Our Lord went up on that mountain, as you remember, 
he came to a, a city that was called Caesarea Philippi. And from there he took the twelve and they climbed up the lower slope of this mountain. We also call it Mount Hermon. He climbed up it and he said, you come with me this time. And they stopped somewhere on the lower slopes. We do not know where. But we do know it is the spring and there was probably still patches of snow here and there. And on that night, something happened that changed all of the disciples and as it were sealed our Lord's ministry with the Father's blessing. You remember they were there and there was an appearance. God himself appeared to his son. And after speaking with him and after he talked to two others, Moses and Elijah, who also appeared, what, wouldn't you like to have been at that group? I mean, this is a great group today, but think about it. You are there, and first comes Moshe. Then comes Elihu. And these are two of the greatest human beings who ever walked this planet. But finally, you have the Father himself saying to the disciples, they said it because Peter, you'll remember, Simon Peter, uh, he thought it was such a wonderful place to be. He said, Lord, let us build here Three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The Lord Jesus didn't have to correct him this time. He often had to correct Simon Peter. I feel like Simon Peter most of the time when I'm ministering. At any rate, here, he did not have to speak, but the Father said, this is my son, the beloved one. Hear him. He says that to us this morning, by the way. This is my beloved son, hear him. This is how, in a sense, the father is capping or ending the successful, the eternally successful ministry of his son. You remember he started it at the Lord's baptism. When he said to those who were crowded around, when he came up out of the water, he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. During my days of going to seminary, I'd been an engineer for a number of years, and all of a sudden God kicked me in the seat of the tunic and said, Rose, you're going elsewhere. And so I go elsewhere to seminary. I went to Dallas Theological just up the road, and I love New Testament studies, and I love languages, so I wound up being a major in the Greek department. The head of our department was... S. Lewis Johnson, a wonderful scholar, great guy, but he put up with no foolishness or something he thought was foolish. We're now at the end of our four-year seminary course, and we are all talking to Dr. Uh, about what the doctor about what we could write on. And Dr. Johnson is taking this and that and says, Mr. Rose, what would you like to write on? What would your dis dissertation, what would you like it to be? I said, uh, Dr. Johnson, I would like to write on those silent years from when our Lord was conscious and uh, moving and a young, young child who was, had cognizance, who grew up and finally who appears on the scene and begins to minister at, we believe, about 33 years of age. I want to write about those silent years. And I'll never forget it. One of our brothers here had some half glasses. S. Lewis wore those. And he looked at me, and he pulled his half glasses down. And he said, Mr. Rose, I want to read you a passage. And he went to the Gospel of Matthew and he read the passage I just mentioned, how the Lord appeared with his disciples, the ones that were already following him, and God the Father spoke to him as he appeared coming out of the water from his baptism. And the Father said to all who watched the Lord Jesus be baptized at the beginning of his ministry, the Father said to them, 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Dr. Johnson says, that covers what you want to write around. And he says, Mr. Rose, why don't we just leave it at that? And I said, that's a good idea. <laughs> well, this is an important moment. This is the end of the well-pleased time that our Lord walked on this earth. And the disciples that just heard that again, this is my beloved son, now it's hear him. Through the Holy Spirit, hear him wherever you go. Hear him from God's word. And above all, follow and obey him. And that is what we have in 19. It is the end. Our Lord would, as it were, come back up a smaller mountain, as we said, in Jerusalem. And there, there he would be crucified on Skull Hill. But as he goes, he's traveling again. It's his last, as it were, long trip. He traveled from Mount Hermon, which is way up in the north. He follows it down the Hula Valley, and then he does something that he rarely did. He went to the other side of the Jordan. When you see that in the Bible, what that means is he went east of the Jordan, on the Jordan shore, as it were, but that's how they said it. And the Lord Jesus did that. And he went down that east side and he went on down the Jordan River by the Sea of Galilee down the Jordan River. And as he went, crowds began to follow him. Great crowds, huge crowds. Now that wasn't because they knew that he claimed to be the Son of God and the Messiah. The big reason for the crowd at this point is this is the week before Pascha or Passover. And so the crowds coming now literally from all of the civilized world, all of the Roman Empire, from east and west, they came finally to this road and they would travel beyond the Jordan on the east side because as good Jews, they were not to go through Samaria. And so as our Lord went, the crowd collected around him, gathered around him. And more and more, some had heard about him, others were hearing about him, and they, they wanted to know about this young prophet, because 33 was very young for someone that famous. They wanted to know about him, and what they wanted to know is, was he indeed the Messiah? Or was he just another prophet? So you have with him a large crowd, and that's the first thing we see about his trip from Mount Hermon all the way to Calvary. There was another part of this crowd, a second part, and those were his disciples who had followed him all the way. When we see him up on the Transfiguration Mountain in Matthew 17, we know that up on that mountain were the 12, but down below, around the mountain, there were many other disciples who followed them. We have that in the scripture. And so you have this second group who's following him who have been faithful to him. We have the 12 and 11 of them will go with him all the way and are in heaven with him today and one is not. But there was a third group peppered through all of these people as they traveled down the east side of the Jordan. And that third group was the group of Pharisees and Sadducees who were the spiritual leaders within Israel. Now normally the Pharisees and Sadducees couldn't stand one another, but they got together on this because they had decided, and we see this as we go on, that they were going to do whatever it took to keep this wave of excitement about Jesus from rising up again. They were coming to take him down. They were trying to do it verbally at first, and that helps us with what we're going to talk about this morning. It says in verse 3, and he's traveling now. He's on the east side of the Jordan. The crowds are there. And the third crowd, that is these Pharisees, and it only mentions Pharisees here, but we know later Sadducees were there, the two great religious sects of that time in Judaism, that the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, being a pastor for over 50 years, I left engineering and was a pastor and still am, I like to think I am, and 
people encourage me, say, oh, yeah, you are, even though they may not believe I am. But anyway, that's all right. Back there, that they, they had uh, come with him, and those that were with him, they were some on one side and the other. And so the, these Pharisees wanted to make sure they took him down. And they do it this time with a question. And I want to tell you this question was one that co was causing an upheaval, not only in Jerusalem and in ancient Israel, but also in all the Roman Empire. And what was the question? Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, up until about 10 years ago, that was a huge question in this country. And uh, most of the pastoral time God gave us in being full-time in the pastorate, we dealt with that question. Can a person get a divorce? And, of course, God says, no, you can't get a divorce except for one reason. Actually, two, desertion and unfaithfulness by a maid. But really, God didn't want divorce at all. But anyway, that was a question they were struggling with. Now, our Lord gave answers to that, and they were the right answers because he is the one that created us and has given us his word. But the Jewish people uh, were not accepting all he said, and very few were accepting him at this time. But they had others who had other ideas. Rabbi Hillel said, no, a man can only divorce if adultery is involved, a woman. And uh, another one, Rabbi Akiba, he was, he was more broad and open. He says, well, if, if your wife burns a bread, then it's time to look for another. Now, that was quite a statement. It's still, you read it in Talmud. At any rate, that was a huge issue. I want to say at this point, if we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, talking about this, we would stop and we would deal with the vitality and the absolute sanctity of marriage, and we're going to do that. But today, that is not really the issue. The issue today is not can we divorce. The issue is marriage worth having at all. Seven years ago, the... Uh, Supreme Court of uh, one of the New England states and uh, came up with this. They said that marriage is optional, how you form it. It is an evolving paradigm. In other words, it's changing however you want to change it. Well, we're in the day, and I promise you, I deal with this, you, you think you could buy this. No, you, you have questions on this all the time, but actually today, the questions aren't about divorce. They are about whether marriage exists at all because we no longer look at those who are created in the image of God as being those who are created in the image of God. We see us as just creatures. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about the woke world. We see that they see us as creatures that evolved and we may be male, we may be female, or we may be one of 67 other, as it were, genders. We're in gender confusion. That was not the problem here, but it is the problem today. And so as we look at this, we have to realize today the question is not about divorce. They still question, there are questions. But the question is really whether marriage is worthwhile at all or was the New England Supreme Court that said it's an optional paradigm were they right? What I want to say this morning briefly is that the Lord answers this question, but he does not answer it by going to what this guy says about divorce and what that rabbi said. He goes back to the very beginning. And as we come to Valentine's Day Wednesday, it's good for us to look at why God created marriage and how absolutely vital and how absolutely holy it is. It is one of the holy movements that God gives us the opportunity to be a part of. And so we're going to go back because Jesus answered them with this. 
He answered them and says in verse 4, answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this cause or reason shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. I just want to say something about this. We have had to deal with genderism because of some of the situations we are in. I want to tell you, to decide that genders are not from God, that God did not create the male as one part of this union, that reflects him and the female as the other part. To say that is not created by God, but it's just sort of something that happened and you do anything you want, is about as blasphemous as you can possibly talk about. And that is why I believe our civilization is on the very edge of crashing, of falling apart. We'll come back to that when, as we go into this. And so the Lord says, and that's what he does. He doesn't bother with Rabbi Akiba or Rabbi Hillel. He goes back to the word of God, which we have in the book of Genesis. And we're going to go back to that for a few moments. These quotes are from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, I want us, as we look to them, to put into our minds that this is a creation of God that I call the crown of his creation on earth. And that it is, in a true sense, what he's talking about. Marriage, two people becoming one person, is the foundation of a viable, sustaining civilization. You throw that out, and you're out. And we're seeing that happen right now as we watch our nation slowly sinking into not only uselessness, but finally just not existing at all as a country. We'll go back to Genesis because that is where the Lord uh, quotes from and where he starts. Verse uh, 26 comes after the Lord has created everything else. And that's the animals, the ground, the, the, all of the real estate, the seeds, the crops that you grow. And he says in this, and God saw that it was good. Then God, verse 26 of Genesis 1, said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. I want to stop there a minute. The word uh, image is uh, one that we really aren't sure about its meaning. I think in eternity when the Lord, one of the questions I want to ask Moses, who probably got the word that of God, which was Genesis from the Father, said, well, what does that image mean? Likeness, yes. Likeness we understand because he's going to create, he says, these two the, the, in our image and our likeness. And we know the likeness of God comes to us as individuals, but also as couples in marriage. And one of the key ways is we know God is three in how many? One. He is three in one. In marriage, you are two in one. But in Ephesians, Paul makes it clear, very clear, that your unity in marriage is a reflection of the unity of God the Trinity. Now, that's an amazing thing. When you go and you look at that lady who's your wife that you love, I hope, deeply, you look at that man that's your husband and that you cherish, realize that the two of you together are a very picture, reflection of the likeness of God. There are other things that are in the likeness of God, the love we have, sacrificial love, the uh, knowledge we have of spiritual things, but I always think of the oneness we have, as it were, in unity in marriage. And so that God said he is going to let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And let them, he says, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle 
and over er all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, I pastored, Phil San and I were, uh, were uh, involved in pastoral ministry, pastored a church in New York City for a number of years, right on West 57th Street. We were right across from Carnegie Hall. So I love classical music. It was really fun for me. Anyway, one of the things we uh, found out there, though, is a passage like this, the people who'd lived in New York, we had people that lived on our block of West 57th, lived there all their life. And when you talk about creeping things and cattle and all, they, they say, say what? They had no idea about that. You can understand this really in a way, and I, I love that about it. I'm learning, too, from you, that you're out here, you've raised things, and you've seen that this is something that God did and why he did it. It helps your understanding of the Creator. And so that's why he puts that in, and he says you're to rule over them and take good care of them. Now, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here we come to the issue that God created man in his own image and his life. He created him. Now, it's a singular, not only in the English, but in the Hebrew text. But the next thing we find is that man is a two-part invention. A two-part creation. God didn't have to, he didn't have to say, yeah, I wonder what I'll do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. But it's a two-part creation that comes together as one person that becomes the foundation of any lasting civilization. And so he says, I created him, and male and female, I created them. In other words, when God talks about man, and he uses the word Adon here, it's man, he's not just talking about us, guys. If you are your wife or your husband ever says, well, I, I, I'm the man of this house, all you have to say is, not without me. And you can go to this passage and read, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. You talk about equality, it is equal. Now, we have different goals and we'll see that. So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply. And Fill the earth and subdue it. I, I just throw this one in. I, I'm not going to go much further here. But subdue it. Well, well what do they have to subdue? Uh, there was a movie out years ago which called, was called This Way Evil Comes. And it was about Satan coming to the earth. Well, that's why God said subdue it. The earth was not... A wonderful, it was beautiful and wonderful, but it was not a place without a problem. And the problem was a fallen angel named Lucifer, Ezekiel 38, you can look it up, or 28, you can look it up. But it, it's also about a fallen angel that decided he would take over the earth. And he hasn't given up. We are in a spiritual battle right now in this country like we have never been before. It is amazing. You may have seen last week where a mother and father were put in jail because they kept their child from being changing gender, and they wouldn't let him do it. And they're in jail now for this. Well, we're in a time when the, uh, the earth needs subduing. And so that is something that God gave us to do. And the way we do it first is by being what God created us to be. And that is two people who are one person in Jesus Christ. And that is where we find the creation. And that's the beginning of Valentine's Day and, and all of that. Now, when we look at this, then we realize that God created us as two people to become one person or a two-part invention to become one complete invention. When we lived in New York, we uh, lived right down the street from one of my favorite writers. I never got to meet her, which really hurt me. Neat Christian, and Madeline Lingle. She wrote a lot of wonderful books, and she and her husband, what was his name, Homer or something like Anyway, I don't remember. They, they live right there up on the north side of Manhattan, and just about 20 blocks from us. And she wrote a wonderful book. It was called God's Two-Part Invention, and it was about marriage. 
but she wrote it out of experience. And this couple, we were there at the time, they were doing all kind of wonderful things. They were a light in a dark place through their marriage like no one I have ever seen in that kind of situation. And we thank God for it. Well, that's what we are, a two-part creation that God brings together as one. And that's the anatomy of marriage. And let me look at my clock here. The next thing we're going to see in this is the action that we are to take. First, we see the anatomy and that this two-part invention called marriage is, as it were, the foundation for all progressing, moving civilization. The next thing we see is that God is going to explain the anatomy of marriage, of you and your wife, you and your husband. We pick this up in uh, verse, oh, let's start here. Uh, let's start with verse 7, 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is where we begin to get into the creation. Now, as we get into this creation, the first thing we see is that God formed the male. And that is the word Adam for male. Yatsar, though, in Hebrew is the for word form. Now, guys, I don't want to disappoint you, but this is sort of a vanilla word. It just doesn't have a lot to it. And it means to form something. You know what it's used mostly for in the Bible? is when somebody forms a pot, a clay pot, or a clay item. You see it in Jeremiah. You see it that, that they formed it. It doesn't tell you whether they formed it beautifully or they formed it poorly. It's just a pot. And uh, you, you just, men, just write it down. When God created us, we can all say, pots are us. We're it in that situation. Now, he does that because that other part that he's going to create is much more beautiful than we are. And I don't have to wonder about I look out on this audience. I know some of you, and, and guys, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not trying to put you down or me down. My wife's much prettier than I am. She stays pretty and I get old. I don't understand this. <laughs> and so that is what God made. That is why he made. He formed, he formed man from the uh, dust of the ground, really the clay of the ground, and brought, and he breathed into them the breath of life. Now that tells us something else about us. Unlike all of the other creatures that breathe and have, have blood and the blood flows and have a respiratory system, we are the only ones that are, as it were, those who have a spirit. He breathed into the, uh, the he became a living, he breathed into him the breath of life. Now that life for us is not just living. All animals have, as it were, the breath of life. But for man, that breath of life carries something eternal. That life is eternal. We could go on, we don't have time, we'd be here next Sunday talking about that because the Psalms talk about it a lot. But God, when he breathed into us, breathed into us his very life. That tells you how beautiful and how precious each one of you are. That you have the very life of God in you. And don't ever let people tell you that, you know, man is just terrestrial trash. That's what we're saying. No, you're, every one of you is precious to God. And you have his birth. And you're going to live forever. Now, you do have to choose where. And that's also something, and that's why we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Valentine giver. He's going to go up on that mount, little hill just outside the, the west wall of Jerusalem and he's going to give his life. He's going to give his spirit. His spirit won't go away. He'll re be resurrected. But he is going to give his life so that we may have his eternal spirit when we trust in him. And so that's what God has done. He breathed into the and Adam started off saved. I want to say that. I believe that's true theologically. 
uh, he's going to have to trust God and have his spirit, and I don't really understand all of that. If you do, tell me we'll write a dissertation and be famous. Uh, but uh, anyway, but we all have the spirit of life in us. God made us out of the ground. Now, the next thing we want to deal with is that God puts Adam in a wonderful place. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Again, that same word, it's our, whether you're formed is good, you know, pretty or not, pretty or not, we're just formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God causeth the growth of every tree that is pleasing to good, the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That tree of life is going to be Adam's step of faith. Now, he at this point has God's spirit in him, but to enjoy being a child of God and living, he is going to have to eat of the tree of life as well. And we won't get into that. And that really is equivalent to us. The tree of life for us, we find when we trust in Christ that we receive his life. At any rate, now the next thing God says, he talks about a river flowing out of Eden and the water, he, with the water he gardened. And from there it divided into four rivers. We won't go through all that. You can read it. But we do see that Adam had a wonderful place to live. And God made it very nice. And boy, you love to be out in the country like we do. And I love living where I am. I didn't first like it. I grew up in the city. I got out here and we're in Lano. Where is Lano? I couldn't even find it on the map. He says, that's where we're going to live. I said, yes, dear. <laughs> and we went and we were up on this little mountain. It's really beautiful and everything. But I was miserable. I didn't hear it. New York, I could hear 57th Street, all night long, you know, there were sirens. That was music to me. I got here and all I heard was tweet and other things. But finally I got over it and I now love Lionel most. And thank you for letting us live here. At any rate, that's where he lived. He lived in a beautiful place and the rivers are described and you get the name of the second. And then the third river is the Tigris. And of course we know that one, that is the Fertile Crescent the two rivers of Tigris and the Euphrates. Then we find that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Look at the word keep it. That is not a benign word in Hebrew. It means to keep it from evil or to guard it from attack. In other words, you're in this beautiful garden and we're in a beautiful place here and yet we suffer attack. The enemy Satan wants this to belong to him and he tells everybody it does and a great number of people in this country believe that now but it's not true yet God has given us the responsibility of letting Satan know and everybody else know it's not true that as we follow our Lord Jesus by faith in him and uh, son of God the Father that we're in a battle. My son who is a doctor in Corpus uh, has a statement he uses, has a podcast and he often speaks and he says God has not made the church an audience. He's made us an army. And I'm going to tell you we are in a battle and we face it every day and so do you. So we're to keep it. We're to fight this battle. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may eat freely. And then he says, You can't eat. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat from it, you sh will surely die. Now we want to pick it up in 18 again. We have looked at the, as it were, the... Uh, uh, creation by God of those who are, are the foundation of civilization and how we, the, how we came together, the, the anatomy of marriage. And secondly, we want to look at the uh, anatomy or each part 
of this two-part invention that God has made for us. Then the Lord God said, and we need to stop here. 18 is a big change. The Lord God said, in Hebrew it says, the Lord God said, Lotov. Lo in Hebrew is not bad. It's not. And tov is good. It's really, it's not good. In fact, we might say it really stinks. And why does it stink? What's the problem? Adam's only half, half of a person Half of a man, because remember, man is male and female. And he's only half. He's not complete. He does not have Eve. And guys, look at this. If you don't have a wife, if you have the gift of singleness, every time I preach on this, somebody goes, well, I'm single. Am I decursed? I said, no, no. God may have given you the gift of singleness. He may fulfill that in your life which a mate would fulfill. But normally, most of the time, God gives us a mate, a man or a woman, a woman, a man, a man, a woman, and that's fulfilling. Well, Adam is there, and things are not going well. God knows it, but you know, Adam knows that, and so God does something with him. We find this in 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all of the cattle and all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, now here's where Adam realizes it. There was not a helper found suitable for him. Now, if we go back to the beginning, we find that God already knew this problem existed. Because we read in verse 18, before Adam realizes it, verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good, lo tov, for the man to be alone. And then he says, what do you do? I will make him a helper suitable for him, a helper who responds to him. Now, then he says he's going to do that, but before he does it, he says, Adam, I, I've got something for you to do. And Adam says, and God may have said to Adam, do you like where I put you to live? Oh, yeah, Lord, it's beautiful. Everything's fine. Well, not, no, Lord, I don't like to complain, but there is a problem. <coughs> there are all these beings, and they all seem to have another one that's sort of like them, and they get together and they enjoy each other. Uh, they they have a mate. I don't know if he would have used that word. And uh, I keep looking for a uh, mate among the animals. But these are are not people. They they are are not like me. They're animals, and I'm nothing like them. And so yeah, there's a problem. And God usually does that with us. The Lord God who loves us and saves us through his son, he lets you, us usually, if we're walking with him, find out where we have a problem and how we need to change, and then we do it. He doesn't just give it to us. Sometimes as parents, we're guilty of doing that with our kids. We just give everything to them. I know you're going to need this. They go out and throw it away. But God waits till Adam knows he has a need. Now, and Adam knows he has a need. Now, he knows it, and he has man, the man has named all of these animals. That was something else. Boy, that was a, a course in zoology. And so once he realizes it, that he does not have a helper suitable. I need to deal with these two words. Helper means one who comes alongside to help you, and suitable means one who corresponds or answers back to you. Now, it doesn't mean answer back in an argument. Literally, that's what the Hebrew text says. It means that answers back to what you need. She responds. The second thing is she's called a helper, and that's just what it means. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought we were equal in this marriage relationship, husband and wife. And I got to be a helper. Well, that's a good educational and spiritual point for all of us, for myself. Being a helper is the greatest thing God can call you to do. I'll just read you a passage that will help you along the way and help me along the way. I, I often think, you know, I'm the 
and that does indicate that Adam is the leader of this relationship. He really is. And because he's going to have a helper. But notice what God says about this. And this is in Psalm 33. I love the psalm reading this morning, by the way. Thank you. Our soul waits for the Lord. Verse 20 of Psalm 33. He is our help. Same Hebrew word as we find over here. I will make him a helper. He is our help. Now, if God says he's our help, I guess it's all right to be a help. You know, to be a help does not mean you're inferior or you're being put upon. It means that God has given you the, the opportunity to serve. One of the brothers up here talking about how he had the opportunity to serve. That's the greatest opportunity in the world. You want something fulfilling, be one who serves others. Well, God has given us a helper who responds to us. She answers back. She understands us. Now, once man knows that he doesn't have this, God says, okay, now we'll correct the problem. And in verse 21 reads, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and then he took one of his ribs, literally in the old text, the old Hebrew text, literally he took his, one of his sides, he had two sides, he took the whole thing. He replaced it, of course, or we'd all be in bad shape. He took one of his ribs and he closed the flesh at that place. And the man fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. I love this part. Adam goes to sleep. God puts him to sleep, grumbling. I'm sure he says, oh, I don't know. It's just by here with all of these smelly animals. But when he wakes up, all of a sudden, he sees something. And it's different, but it's like him. And I'm going to tell you, Adam is excited when you read this in uh, the old text it's like wow the man Adam said this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman uh, Isha is woman in Hebrew it means taken out of man because she was taken out of man now man is two people in one person now, the next thing we see is God's further instructions on this new two people as one person relationship and how it operates. And we will find out where we are time-wise here. Yeah, we'll be getting through with this, with this. And the man said, and he gives his little song there, and he's excited. And by the way, uh, notice something else. The, we find that uh, who performed the first marriage? God. He says, Adam, here she is. So when you were married, remember back in a true sense, God was saying, George, Charlie, Willie, here she is, Adam, here she is. And God gives him. And he's excited about it. And then... We are going, God goes on to give us the short manual on marriage relationship. And that is verse 24 and 25. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, they saw Sin had not yet entered in, that they were made for each other. There was nothing twisted about it. And the thing that really I want us to look at is what it takes to be married. He describes that marriage is first giving up something. It's leaving your mom and dad. Now you say, well, I did that a long time ago. And that may be true, and I hope it is. It's not just you throw them away and you don't go see them. Oh, I can't see you. No, it's that you recognize that you are forming what they have, a new home. 
And that home is going to be the foundation of the civilization. In fact, the Romans, I'm doing a thing on Roman history right now, <clears throat> the earliest part of Roman history, about 800 B.C., you have one of their leading generals who said the most important thing for a nation staying viable and a winner, he says it in Latin, but viable and a winner, is that we come not from a senate, not from a government, but we come from hearth and home. His point is the home is the foundation of every civilization. Now, so first he leaves his mother and then he is joined. I love the word join. It's the Hebrew word dabek. Actually, it's a Hittite word. And it means to weld. The Hittites and the early Greeks were the first ones to really weld iron. And then it really got going in what we call iron one. They made iron spears and everything. But the big thing that they could do they were able to join them to be one. And that's what he's joined to his wife. It, in Hebrew, literally means he's welded to his wife, Debek. Now, before I ever went to a seminary and all of that, I was an engineer. And the last thing I worked on was the Apollo project. We're putting man for, on the moon for the first time. You know, very exciting stuff. And we all went around thinking how wonderful we were. We were... <laughs> We usually failed at what we were trying to do, but one of our problems was welding. Now, we all knew about welding, you know. Well, all of a sudden, we're welding at Greek Ascoli, which is a very sophisticated steel. Well, that was the first big failure. We're, we're going to use this in space. It's going to be on the Apollo. Whoa, whoa. Well, we welded pieces together, and we put it into hard vacuum. We never tried that. Hard vacuum means that there's no air. You have a molecule here and a molecule there. And we put it in there, and you know what happened? It just falls apart. Boom. It didn't work. So we spent about three years finding out what did work. Well, God has made us, welded us together, and it works the first time because he knows what he's going He makes us a hot basar, one flesh. And that one flesh not only looks at physical, but...